0: Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform, and otherwise alter you.
1: Good luck. Dear Cousin Charles, By the time you receive this letter, I shall be in my final resting place. I bequeath you a magnificent ancestral home we call Chapelwaite. Some blame Chapelwaite for the illness in town. Once the people see that there's nothing to fear, this animosity will diminish.
2: Unless there is something to fear.
1: Father, are we safe here?
0: Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Loser's Club, a Stephen King podcast. Today, we've got an exciting one for you. We're here to talk about Chapelweight, which is a, a new Stephen King adaptation, uh, sort of. It's an, It's interesting. Uh, it's on the streamer Epics um epix which you have probably never heard of it's a real mr mercedes situation we got here uh show streaming on you know kind of a a phantom network or a phantom Phantom network (laughs) (laughs) well the audience network i feel like i did i didn't know anybody who had that and uh the only way i was able to watch that show was was through screeners and then um and then i started um going through illegal means uh which i think i just admitted to a crime but um but now it's on peacock so that's cool i don't know if uh chapel wait will ever end up on peacock i can't imagine epics is too long for this world but anyways this is a 10 episode series it's <laughs> love this begin the pod with doom saying yeah um <laughs> this episode um, is sponsored
3: by epics uh subsidiary <laughs> of mgm uh, you know,
0: um so, yeah, but a uh, 10-episode series, it's an adaptation of the Night Shift story, Jerusalem's Lot, uh, which is, a, a you know, a, a Lovecraftian prequel to the book, Salem's Lot, that was published in Night Shift. Very strange story, very uh, – an outlier for King um, – which kind of allows uh, this to be both a King adaptation and not. We'll talk a lot about sort of, uh, you know, the wh- how much of a King story this really is. But let's, uh, let's go around and introduce ourselves. Mike, uh, say hello. And what was the first, your favorite Adrian Brody performance? My favorite Adrian Brody performance? Well, first off, this is Michael. No,
3: I do not look like Adrian Brody. I look more like Alf Rothman. <laughs> Tired of those uh, comparisons? I I would love to look like. I'm tired of being
0: told I look like beautiful. But the thing is, like, I'm not. I
3: don't look like him. So I, as as you'll see in the videos of our interviews, it's a side by side. Look nothing like. Even though Sammy still says you look just like him. I'm like, I don't. I don't look anything like him. So stop. The only
0: the only celebrity anybody tells me I look like is David Krumholtz. So well, um, to be fair, I've I've long said, and you've probably exhausted by this,
3: but you look like young Mark Hamill. Go look at high school Mark Hamill and it is literally Randall Colburn
0: like it is de- they're dead on um well so. that's good to hear anyway uh, i am i am something of a skywalker uh but your favorite brody performance
3: yeah so i i really love adrian brody in the darjeeling limited i think that he is just that was literally what i was gonna say he's just so phenomenal in that movie and i think that's one of the more underrated films in uh wes anderson's canon actually and one of the reasons why i love his performance is that it's so inward and like introspective you know you really have to kind of like glean a lot of the details from like the sort of conflicts that he's going through so A lot of it's very like in his face and like a a lot of like mannerisms that he has and the body language that he presents. And, uh, you know, we said that uh, Adrian Brody's a sexy man. And uh, let's just say he uh, presents sexy body language to read on screen. So uh,
0: that would be my pick. Lots of sexy Broads in Chapelweight. That's a little preview of it. Jen, say hello (laughs) and your favorite Adrian Brody performance.
2: Hi, this is Jen, Mrs. Brody Adams. (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite one is Predators because of the arms. (laughs) the and, arms yeah i forgot he's in it. predators yeah. yeah it's i i actually that might be my favorite predator movie it's my favorite franchise. predator yeah yeah it's good and it, it, like he's got this like really gruff kind of demeanor which like i think really works in chapel and really works there in predators in like a different way like he's just very quiet in that movie and i just like that movie a lot so you know yeah plus the arms cool. are nice <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to be weird for the entire episode. I promise.
0: Yeah, it's more abs than arms. I'd say in Chapel.
2: In Lake, this but... one, yeah. Well, to
3: be uh, fair, but... we already went through like what ten episodes. I can't even remember how many episodes of The Stand was it? Eight. We, we, oh the, yeah. The stand, we, in every episode that we talked about, Alexander Skarsgård's at. So yeah, I mean, I think this we're, is maybe we're, a little bit. We're of a fine.
0: Episode. <laughs> we're fine. We're fine.
2: They know who I am. <laughs>
0: Dan, say hello, and your least favorite Adrian Brody performance.
1: Oh, no, I love Adrian yeah. Brody, though. This is Dan, Dracula Caffrey. You know, and as far as, <laughs> as, as far as the comparisons go, for me, I've gotten Adrian Brody, uh, Antonio Banderas, Idris Elba, Brad Pitt. The list Idris just goes Obama. on. Like There isn't a hot celebrity I haven't been compared to um, in my years. Um, so I, I'm with you, Mike. I understand you're... All right. uh, yeah um, i mean i hate I, I was on team sammy when you sent the screenshot of you interviewing him I, that was not a joke i w- I thought he was you and you were him at first so I, that, that that's the last i'll say about it because i don't want to make you mad but i yeah, um, don't want to upset
0: you upset like, comparing no. you to more beautiful people <laughs> it's, it's it's
3: alf it's Alf, or Adr- it's uh it's not adrian it's all alf i eat cats
1: and uh, huh. uh hey, a uh, impression. What's what's Alf's real name? Something Shumway? So Ernest Adrian
2: Shum- Brody, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wait
1: Wait, wait, you say Shumway? Like what is Alf? Like Jewish? No, or Alf's something? real like... name is Alf's real name is something Shumway, like like Ernest Shumway or something like that. I'll I'll look that up. Oh, um, I'm, I'm yeah, looking Shumway it up right is now. now. Yeah, a look at it, something Gordon, Shumway. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon Shumway. Shumway. Gordon Shumway. <laughs> Gordon Shumway. That's Alf. That's real King Dominion. Uh, Uh, his nickname is on according to Google is Alf Gordo, but um, yeah, I don't don't know if I have a least favorite. I think he and I'm not this isn't hyperbole, I think he's great in everything he does. Um, uh, okay, your favorite then favorite is uh, I know it's maybe not his most celebrated movie, but the first thing I saw him in was Summer of Sam, and I felt like Mm -hmm. he was so good in that I felt like I'd seen him a a bunch of times before, but he hadn't really been in much before that. I love this scene, the montage set to um, to We Won't won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Mm-hmm. Is there yeah. one of Bob O'Reilly? Am I making that up too? Are there two who montages in that? I think there might be two actually, because I, I feel yeah. like uh Spike Lee like loves to double down on songs sometimes. Kind of like the Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, I but I love him in that. He plays this uh kind of you know, Italian kid from the neighborhood who goes away and comes back and becomes a punk rocker slash uh, kind of a cabaret performer or so maybe an escort. Um, it's been a minute since I've seen it, but I, he just he gets to go through the ringer in that movie and just show a lot of different sides of himself right off the bat. So I've always loved him. Some thinner thinner in line after that pianist, of course. I mean, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Brody head. I like him in the village, too. I, you know, I don't know if he would be playing that role these days, but I, I think he's great in that. I don't know. Big Brody head really really big uh big bro into the broads honored uh to watch the show honor that you guys got to talk to him <laughs> <laughs> for real i think he's great i don't i don't have it i'm trying to think of even a crappy movie he's been in that i've seen like. i think he makes pretty good choices so what, I have to,
3: here's a tr- here's a wild thing so you said two who there's three actually
1: oh wow yeah bob o'reilly won't get fooled again i wonder what the other in one is summertime blues Oh man, that's probably is that less featured. The other two are like during my mon- I, th- I yeah, think yeah, it's like less featured. I think so. I think Bob O'Reilly is like this kind of victorious montage with the characters in the middle of the movie. Then I think "Won't Get Fooled Again" is like sort of the violent end of the movie. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I, I like I that like movie the though. I like the montage set to "Semi-Charm Life" in that movie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah. oh man that would be so uh, funny if spike lee did. De- i actually that movie came out right around that time so that right, was a real yeah. big flex movie. i do know semi life is featured in the trailer of the tigger movie <laughs> well oh, nice. I, well david berkowitz has always said that's his favorite movie or a favorite song
3: actually so um. that's
0: true mm-hmm. uh yeah they i love that scene in mindhunter where they talk to him
1: about third eye blind <laughs> he's like he's like you know blue is a better album than the self-titled <laughs> He's, he's like, you know, they they have, I'm this, uh, you know, uh, Dirty Harry Scorpio killer was kind of based off me and they have an album called Ursa Major. So I think we're really, we have astrological interests. So I love Stephen Jenkins. I yeah. love Stephen Jenkins. Uh, God. Um,
0: cool. Uh, okay. Chapelway, this show, I'm going to read a quick synopsis and we could talk a little bit about maybe our first reactions when we first heard about this. Following his wife's tragic death at sea, Captain Charles Boone, played by Adrian Brody and his children, returned to the small town of Preacher's corner's Maine, where a dark family history haunts them until confronted um so this it's kind of funny because this was announced kind of in the thick of i think a million stephen king adaptations many of which um are not coming to fruition um you know mike and i god it was more than a year ago now but you and i like sat down and did an episode where we just talked about every single uh adaptation that had been announced by that point and what whether we thought one would happen or one wouldn't. And I remember thinking this was one of the weirder ones, like this uh, this idea of an Adrian Brody starring, um, you know, Lovecraftian slash Gothic uh series based on this really obscure story that is a prequel and also a little confusing because it's called Jerusalem's Lot when, you know, it was it was published after a book came out called Salem's Lot. Um, and they really don't have a ton to do with each other. I mean, obviously you can draw lines between one and two. And Jen, I know you recently reread these as well as Salem's Lot, so we can talk about that. But yeah, I remember being like, of all the big hope high profile adaptations that are getting announced, that this is one of the ones that actually comes to fruition and airs and makes it to TV and yeah. And so I've, I've just been curious about this. Like what were your guys' first reactions when you heard that this was being adapted into a TV series? Was this something you were excited about or cynical
1: about? What do you guys think? I was excited about... I mean, I'm always skeptical of any announcement about a King adaptation for reasons you already went over because so many of them have not come to fruition. And we we were in this period of just like a glut of announcements and you start to lose your excitement after a bit. But I was excited about this one because I think it's an underrated or, or at least underappreciated story. And for me, I think the issue with the live King adaptations like the stand and even portions of it, which are already these big meaty stories, it's like, well are they going to devote enough time to this thing or this thing? Are they going to throw in new stuff that doesn't need to be focused on like they did with the stand a little bit. And what I loved about the Jerusalem's slot angle is that that's such a, it's a long story, but not much really happens in it. Right. It's just, it's just like a kind of setup, essentially. And so for me, I'm like, well, they could include everything in here and also really build out this world, which in my opinion, they have in a way that's very satisfying. So I was really excited about it. And the fact that Brody was in it, once again the guy makes good decisions he brings a certain level of prestige to it so i was just excited Mm -hmm. about it just because it it seemed like it was going to be a very thoughtful adaptation and and i think it is so yeah i lived up to the hype for me yeah
0: and um it was it was created by peter and jason filardi who we also interviewed correct Mm -hmm. and um Mm -hmm. and uh they've got sort of an interesting resume uh in terms of you know, their background. I mean, these guys, well, at least one of them worked well, on Peter Filardi. Liners, right? Yeah. 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 Yes. So, but then like Jason Filardi, like he wrote the script for bringing down the house yeah. starring Steve Martin <laughs> and Queen Latifah um uh, you
3: got me straight a- tripping boo well it's funny because <laughs> oh, yeah, in our interview which you could hear you know now on the same day cause this will be a separate ep- episode but um he you know jason was very funny and that he he joked around saying like well you know i brought my uh, chops from 17 again <laughs>
1: yeah to well uh-huh. and hey there's a, a shit's correct didn't one of because uh, it has the girl from Shit's creek in this and then he had eugene yeah, levy in, sure. in uh and mm-hmm. bring down the house uttering that immortal line that i just said so he had oh. <laughs> some connections there <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. And so it's just a a really sort of like, you know, I wasn't sure about, you know, it's, it's not like Jordan Peele announced he's going to make Chapelweight, you know, it's kind of like, oh, these guys haven't, you know, like been big Hollywood players in a while, which is not a bad thing. It's just, you know, you don't see this too often uh, in Hollywood. And so I was a little bit like, hmm, this is going to be. Interesting. And then, who And then, like, one of the directors, Burr Steers, um, who he's kind of helped set the visual palette for this show. He's kind of best known for being the writer and director of Igby Goes Down, starring Kieran Culkin, and also worked movie. on 17 again, um, starring Zach Efron. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting group. And then, my favorite Burr Steers thing uh, aside from him being the nephew of Gore Vidal, um, he also. um. Was in Pulp Fiction, playing the guy on the couch who mm-hmm. uh, who they call flock of seagulls before shooting him. Um, so just very interesting, uh, scene. you know. Yeah, great scene. Uh, just a, a very interesting like group of people uh, that have uh, amassed to adapt this. Um, Jen, as somebody who has recently reread both Jerusalem's Lot and Salem's Lot, uh, what do you think that this piece was originally written as an adaptation of these, or was it sort of backdoored into King IP to help get it produced? Um, what do you think
2: I think it was an adaptation of this I think um because like I've read Jerusalem's lot um and I was not excited about this at all because I don't like that story very much um I think the epistolary format is really just kind of hard for me to wrap my it's hard for me to follow you know which is the problem I have with Dracula too um so I read it and just kind of didn't register a lot of it in my mind it's like I got through it and I remembered the ending um but then as I was rereading it after watching a couple of episodes of the show I started to notice little bits and pieces Like there's just a sentence about a lady who has a baby with no eyes and that's just kind of thrown out and that becomes like a bigger plot point here. So I think it was written um, from seeds of Jerusalem's Lot, also knowing that they, um, Peter Filardi, I think, wrote the TNT adaptation of Salem's Lot. In, like, 2004, I think. And there's, like, a lot of connection between the two without, like, directly making connections. Um, like, I've got a King's Dominion section for just about every episode. Um, but it's never, like, a direct call-out. It's always, like, this is similar. You know, this, like, like, shadows of this, but then it goes in a different direction. So it's, like, they're playing with the world, but... It is its own thing, but I don't, I don't really see this as being like the story feels fundamentally what Jerusalem's lot is, you know,
1: Mm -hmm. do do you guys think that I, I think we talked about this probably in the night shift episode way, way back in the day. I always want, because I kept wondering with this, I'm like, oh, this does well. Will they make like a, will they finally make a really good, faithful Salem's Lot adaptation as a TV show eventually? Maybe, maybe not. But what do you guys think, even just from the short stories connection to Salem's Lot? Like, what do you think that is? Because I, Salem's Lot's weird because it shows the coming of the vampires to the town, right? And Jerusalem's lot, there's vampires there already. Yeah, and the, uh, did they get vanquished in the centuries between, or was it just to show, oh, this town is just corrupted by this age-old evil from the get-go? Yeah, Mike, what, what well, do you think? I, is, I was wondering.
3: Yeah, and this is where I get really frustrated with this short story. And this is we've talked about this on our Discord a l- little bit because when you look at like what's in the makeup of Jerusalem's lot, it should be pretty simple with what you build into Salem's lot. And I feel like he kind of has a situation with like the gunslinger and what he would eventually build out with the dark tower where you kind of, I feel like he kind of has to go back and rewrite some of the sections of either Jerusalem's lot or Salem's lot, because you look at Jerusalem's lot and the basic br- blueprint, as you just mentioned, Dan, is all in, is all ready to kind of set this stage for Salem's lot. But then there are things that don't add up. Like, for example, you know, like the chapel, chapel, manor, you'd think would be the Marston house, but it's not, it's this yeah, other exactly. house. Yeah, exactly. gets like, confusing a little bit. But then, but then what's really confusing is that like, so they make allusions to the the Marston house for the most part in this series in that, you know, you literally have a person that's hanging that is, a, uh, that you could conceivably say would be a specter later on that Ben Mears would see in the Marston house, but it's not the Marston house. It's this separate thing. And we talked to the creators about that and they said as much as like, no, it's is not the Marston house. It's separate. So it's very like, it's very confusing, like why King would muddle this in a way, which, you know, you mentioned Randall, like, is this a backdoor story, you know, like a story that they kind of backpedaled into King IP. I almost feel like King did that with Salem's lot in a way, like it almost feels yeah. like too, like, like there's enough connective tissue there, but he didn't do enough of the, the sort of tinkering to make it work and connect because like you have this, the separate thing with Ch- Chapa is not the, the Marcellus. Then you also have Jerusalem's lot that's separate from preacher's corners, but yet they're, yeah. they're kind of close, but they're not very close. And then you have this worship with the worm that eventually, as we see creates, you know, the, the, the you know, elevates the dead again to come back as almost like vampiric forms. But then as Caffrey mentioned, you know straker and barlow come from overseas so wait that does where's the origin on there so like it's all really muddled and i think that i think what's really shows me that i'm not alone in feeling muddled is when Bryant burnett on our discord also said that this is really confusing (laughs) (laughs) so it's like i was like okay so i'm not fucking alone and i'm not crazy and i'm not missing details because it's been four or five years since i've read salem's lot but it does feel like King should go back to either Salem's Lot or Jerusalem's Lot, smooth this out, and make it so that this would be a prequel. Because as we watch in this series, if you looked at this series right now and you took it as you know is what this is going to lead to to Salem's Lot, it all makes sense.
0: It really does. Like, so mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Well, is that I think the James Wan produced uh Gary Doberman <laughs> uh, Salem's Lot is is supposedly still happening. I'm lo- I'm googling mm. it right now. Uh yeah. Yeah, to be Salem's lot to be directed by Gary Dauberman, um who uh no friend of the pod <laughs> uh the <laughs> writer of, of it chapter two and um yeah, so I, I'll I'll defend it chapter two man two but yeah he's definitely the weakest oh, link I'm in on. that I'm um, out it sucks <laughs> and you all suck. Well, I can't uh, wait. No, I cannot. I um, can't
3: wait to the promo cycle for Salem's Lot when we're like, hey, can we get on uh, some some of the PR rep, and they're like, uh, we have heard your last episodes. Um, yeah, I they know. just hold
2: the boombox playing Randall. Seven's no, it, 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 what, <laughs> what's gonna happen is it, it's
3: gonna be like the PR reps, like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure, and then like Doberman's gonna like push her aside and be like, no, that the,
1: these motherfuckers are not allowed next to me, like, this thing. <laughs> these what people if, have it,
0: harassed me for yeah. years.
1: What so. if Doberman's like, he's like, oh, you guys mentioned Stephen King going back and retconning Jerusalem's Lot and Salem's like How about you go back and retcon those episodes to say that I'm fucking awesome <laughs> and give you, <have> you access to <laughs> pieces of shit? They're just really mad at us. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I guess it's the same in the same way. We're probably never gonna get to interview. Uh, a Akiva Hollywood Hack Goldsman. Um, uh, let's talk about Chapel Weight. Um, this, I guess, like, what is this show? Because I think it's, uh, I think that's just a good question to ask in terms of. I imagine most of you who are listening probably don't have Epics, uh, so uh, you're not going to be able to just fire up Netflix and. Um, And just, you know, watch the first 10 minutes and say, is this my thing? What is this even? Like, uh, because I think the marketing makes it look like a very bloody, very gothic, very wormy um, kind of uh, period horror piece. Um, And I and that's the thing is it is that but it also kind of really evolves tonally um, and Ghosts to some extremely grisly places. I think Jen and I have watched all 10 episodes. Mike has watched like eight episodes. Yeah. And Dan, you've watched five. So how would you guys sort of describe the tone of this piece um, to somebody who was curious about what it's like? Mike. It's a cosmic mix between uh,
1: <laughs>
3: 70s psychological thrillers and the 90s exploitation of uh, uh, <laughs> horror that you would get. Uh, you know, we joked around uh, on text threads that this was like a cosmic gumbo <laughs> of, of sorts. No, I'm just joking. Anyway, I digress. We can't go a day without talking about Detective Crashmore from I Think You Should Leave. But I, I do, I, you know, all joking aside, I do think that this is absolutely indebted to the 70s uh, slow burn um, gothic horror that you saw that also seemed to be an offshoot of, like, a lot of the hammer horror. Like, I think of the the direct – this is, like, feels like a direct descendant of, um, like, Herzog's Nosferatu to me. Hmm. Like, there's such a – and it also kind of feels almost, almost, like, entwined with, like, even, like, The Changeling from, like, 1980 with uh, the, the great um, – uh oh my god i can't believe i'm blanking george c scott george c, scott. Yeah, george yes. c. Sky. yeah <laughs> jesus christ king's dominion right yeah. there yeah. yeah and uh well, rainbird um <laughs> yeah but uh so i that's what i kind of see, see it as and i think that's one of the reasons why it would be such an outlier as you were discussing randall today because there really is no room for this type of slow burn sort of dramatic storytelling like the closest thing i could think of is a show that Never really came back, which was Tom Hardy's show for FX.
0: Oh yeah, what was that called? Know, what Peaky
3: Blinders? I, no, 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 it was um, uh, it, was a, it was a no. one taboo. Show. It was taboo. taboo Taboo. that's right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah like Mm -hmm. it reminds me of that and I remember watching that and being like god this is unbelievable like the cinematography is great I love how stoic and patient it is I cannot see this living beyond one season because there's no one in their right mind right now that's going to be patient enough to watch this which is depressing (laughs) I hate this world blah 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 blah, blah, kill me me. no anyway (laughs) but yeah, yeah so that's where I kind of saw the mentality
0: of it it really is an outlier as you're saying Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't feel like anything else that's on TV right now. It, it is, and I think that's because it's it's this um it's this slow burn that gradually evolves into something that feels like a 90s horror blockbuster. As it moves on, but it starts, I think, in this very thoughtful, but very um, grisly is a word I'll come back to, a very dark and punishing sort of world. I mean, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's um, a moment with a baby that you mentioned, John, that I think is really, really difficult to watch. Um, and, you know, and basically uh, we're meeting a lot of very stodgy old white people in very tight corsets and, and suits and everything. And uh and it's not like it's it's the most I guess the way I can describe it is the, it's the most uncool show, I think, on TV right now. Like there is nothing memeable about this show. That's it's it's not it's not explicitly horny, although Jen is very horny for Brody. And I can't blame her because he, <laughs> he get some shirtless you get some shirtless Broads and he looks great. Yeah, uh, but, episode
1: 10, but it's baby. not.
0: Yeah. Well, also, just episodes one and two, you get some, uh get some good. I Very was true. texting Jen just like damn you get shirtless Brody two episodes in a row right out the Gate mm-hmm. but um, and yeah <laughs> and that's Great but the show isn't explicitly Horny which is right. wild for it being a Show that dabbles in vampires And stuff like that like I couldn't believe there wasn't Like a vampire orgy at one point you know Because that's mm-hmm. like all TV is right Now you know it's these uh, It's these memeable uh, moments It's stuff that people will talk about on Twitter it's, uh, it's a lot Of hot people being extremely hot And there's some hot people in the show but not a ton there's a lot of old people on this show that does not play very well in today's uh saturated age and i will say i it took me a minute to sort of get on the wavelength of this show uh mm-hmm. and try to differentiate between these various townspeople because um i think at first they're all just kind of like I don't know, these like huffy puffy, uh, uh, you know, rich white people. Like they're very archetypal. You've seen them on a lot of different uh, shows before. There's the sheriff and there's the minister and there's the mayor. And then, you know, there's all these different women who, um, you know, are subservient to their husbands and so on and so forth. And it's just very much just like hard to, with that slow burn pace, to like get on track with that because usually I think shows are much more quote unquote dynamic now. Uh, mm. But the thing is, it ends up being incredibly satisfying. Um, And I'd say it took me about three or four episodes. And then I started to be a lot more um, in tune with these characters. And then as it moved on, I came to like really love the ensemble of this show, Mm -hmm. which I wasn't expecting at first. I thought this was going to kind of be the Brody show, but it really does become an ensemble um, as it moves. But uh, Dan, how would you sort of describe the tone and feel of this show to people?
1: yeah everything you all are saying is accurate it's funny because at first the you know on, on, at first blush i would say something like the witch right but that's not really accurate because i'm just going off the time period and the fact that it is slow burn and it is pretty antiquarian in terms of just being very realistic as far as portraying the time period but like you said it it isn't as it's not as nebulous or vague or open to interpretation or even philosophically deep as like the A 24 horror. Right. Or uh-huh. um, which I like, because I think that's becoming such a trend in itself. Like well, we're not going to explain everything. And what, yeah, what happens is at least, and I'm not, I'm only halfway through it, but they reveal everything that you find out in Jerusalem's lot. And I won't go into um, in, in this non-spoiler section of the podcast, but they reveal everything as far as the lore and the history of the town and what the evil is that they're contending with about halfway through. The episode I just finished pretty much reveals all the stuff that you find out in Jerusalem's lot, and that to me feels really different. And the fact that from what you guys are saying, it's going to kind of turn into this fast paced 90s horror action blockbuster. It really does feel unique to me. I love the fact that it feels prestigious but not um, abstract, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, this is a great point. And I think you just sort of articulated something I've been I've been turning over with this show. And, and it's that they, I feel like, you know, you watch a show like Servant, right? On Apple TV, which is a M. Night Shyamalan produced um, uh, piece. And it's good, like it's interesting, but it's all fucking mystery. And like, I hit a point with that show where I'm just like, I am not getting as much out of the show as I am putting into it. Like they are giving Mm. me so many mysteries and then no satisfying answers. You know, everything is cloaked in this kind of like, uh, you know, mystery upon mystery upon mystery. It's not showing its cards enough. What I love about this show is it, is it shows its cards and then um, like it doesn't rely on mystery to propel the story. It really relies on action and character and mm-hmm. and horror because it's really grisly and really gory. And like if you want violence, like if you want good old fashioned monster fucking like uh, heads getting cut off and people getting stabbed a thousand times, that shit is here in Chapel And I think that that's really Mm -hmm. cool because like, I feel like we just don't get that kind of thing. There's nothing really abstract about this show. It's really straightforward. Um, And it just sort of relies on, on the propulsive, like, like the, the, especially as it moves in its latter half, it just becomes about plotting and story. It's not about mystery. It's not like a mystery box show, like a JJ Abrams sort of thing, you know? And I think, um, and I think that's maybe why I say it feels more nineties is because films were just a lot more, at least, you know, um, horror and action was just a lot more straightforward back then. Um, And I think that, that's the case with this as well. Jen, what were you going to say?
2: Well, yeah, and because I do think it's paced really well and I think it has a really good idea of where it's going and it's not afraid to like expand the story and so on psychoanalysis we just covered your next and we talked about how when the shit goes down early you have to find creative ways to continue topping yourself and to like um, it can't just be sucking blood for the entire show um, because it gets really repetitive and I think the thing that's great about Chapel Wade is it really it surprised me all of the different places and ways that it would go and everything. Every time I think it's going to be this one thing, oh it 's now a siege story, then it turns into something else, and then it goes in a different direction, and it never feels like it's it's going off the rails, but it just feels like it continues to surprise me, even in the last episode like it just I feel like it's really paced very well, and it's like there's a confidence there of just t- being able to tell that story um and it's funny, Dan, because I was going to say it reminds me of the witch in a lot of ways um. Because I think there, and Mike, you might know more about this, but I think the director of photography, or there's some connection with the way the witch was shot, you know? Because one of the things I love about it is how, like, candlelit it feels, you know? Mm. But I also think that it's telling the story... but it's telling it in like a, a a way that you would tell the story now, you know, like mm-hmm. they're addressing things like racism and they're addressing things like oppression, but they're never doing it in a way that doesn't feel like it would work in the time period. It's just like the, the people are aware and it lets the characters be human in a way that I don't think you could do when you filmed Nosferatu, you know? And so that's part of what I think makes it so interesting and part of why I want to keep going to the places that it takes me, you know?
0: Yeah. What were you going to
3: say, Mike? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, i mean it lays itself out in the same way that salem's lot does you know i mean it's the Mm. slow burn you you create the foundation you get to kind of pour yourself around the town you know get to kind of build up the characters just a little bit you kind of unfold the mythology just enough so that when you get to that second half it really is just kind of balls the wall action and not ball. I mean the balls of the wall is saying a lot because it's still kind of a slow burn in that sense and like you know when we say it gets into like 90s action like you know we're not talking about fucking you know Jan de Bont here like we're <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know it's not the Hugh Jackman it's, it's,
3: there's a vampire it's on
2: the H- bus
0: <laughs> yeah it, like it's not the Hugh Jackman Van Helsing
3: you know? no no but it, it but it's definitely a little bit more athletic and you get into a little bit more it allows itself that it affords itself the opportunity to be more action-oriented because it's already gotten that way uh, a, a lot of the mythology and and characterization and, and and stage staging that uh needs to be done and that's kind of the same way that Salem's Lot is like if you think about it like this whole story like the first half really is just kind of setting the foundation for like when the town does get overcome you kind of just get to have that sort of uh, you know breakdown which king is so good at doing and i think the show is really good at doing too so if in that sense i think that is really its most Kingian quality other than the actual literal ip itself but um i do think that they've kind of orchestrated it out that way um which i kind of respect and i miss because that isn't how you do tv nowadays nowadays you kind of have to just do a little bit of mixture of both and oscillate mm-hmm. you know to you know vastly differing results which is why i think so many shows either shit the bed or you know really soar because they try to do too much at once and i kind of like the fact that they really do there is a glacial pacing here because then it thaws out Mm. and you're like all right i'm all in keep the right? like that was uh,
0: that was just one thing i found really satisfying was i struggled at first like to get on the shows like um you know track like and to start to really identify with these characters but then yeah it's like it's a really confident Um, story because if you do stick with it and you are patient with it then it really becomes super satisfying and it moves like really well and you're really invested in these characters Uh, Jen go ahead
2: well and that's yeah one of the things that stuck out to me a lot on this reread of Salem's Lot compared to this show is like and part of what I said in my review for Remorgue is that it, it is just a classic vampire story and mm-hmm. I feel like we've seen so many vampire stories over the years and I love many of them but there's always the temptation to like make it vampires but also this and vampires but but it's like actually a commentary on that which is really really fantastic in a lot of ways and I'm not shitting on any other vampire stories but like Salem's Lot and Chapel Wait feel like vampire stories and that's it and they're just done really really well and in like making a town like be faced with this threat you just get this this story about like human beings being in a town and it's funny like the the undeadness like brings out the life in everybody else for better or worse and it's just like there was no temptation to try to make it something else it just is it's like that confidence to just be what it is and be what it is really well.
0: Yeah, I said to Mike, uh, I love that the show doesn't feel the need to reinvent the vampire. You know, Totally. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just uh, like it kind of trusts that we know the rules. I mean, it's the very mm-hmm. Bram Stoker kind of uh, approach to this story, which is which is true to the spirit of Salem's lot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Dan, the, go
1: ahead. What are the plans? I mean, you guys probably know better than I do. What are the plans for the show? Is it meant to be just a one off um, or do they want it? OK, it's just one off. Do yeah. you think of it? I mean, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't know much about epics before this, but I think it's reason enough to get it. And like, maybe that's part of its success. Like because epics is not this well-known thing, maybe they were able to be really independent and do what they want to do. And if that's the case, it could be a good home for a Salem's lot in the future. But do you know, if there are, are there any plans for anything like that or have they remained mum on that?
3: I mean, I imagine this team wouldn't because they did it, you know, like, they because if they did the two 2004 Salem's lot, they seem like, I, I imagine they'd be like, all right, well, we don't want to go, the same way. I mean, I, I asked him, you know, when we interview and you'll you could listen to the interview now, but you know, I asked Peter for Laherty, like, did you imagine this is in the same universe as your Salem slot? And he said as much as he does, like he, he kind of wrote it in the sense that like, all right, well, this is probably going to exist in the Salem slot that we get in 2004.
1: Now, you know, but this is so much better than this. I know <laughs> not to be an asshole, but I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I do think that Salem's lot shits the bed a little bit, you know, and, and I've, I've wanted, I love the 70s Salem's lot, but I've always wanted a Salem's lot that he's a lot closer to the book. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that's so, Network
2: Itis in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, that's true. Cause that, cause there was the original one on TNT or something TNT. like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I'm, cause seeing this style, I'm like, man, I would love to get a Salem's lot from this team that can do whatever the hell they want with it. But it sounds like maybe they think they did that already. Um, well, when we yeah.
3: mentioned the fact that, cause we also asked like, well, would you want to round it out by doing one for the road? And like, we, we saw like Peter writing it down and we were joking around <laughs> saying like, oh, maybe, <laughs> like, you know, cause I, I mean, I think that's, you know, he certainly has attracted to this. And I think one of the reasons why is that they the, the Florida brothers grew up in like new England. And so I think one of the things that attracted the King was this, these, this story, especially because, and he'll talk about it in the interview, but you know, he knows these towns and that's why i like and again they'll digress on this but you know they leaned more on the actual like history and lore of the of these surrounding areas than they did you know say king's you know ip i mean granted you know they took the seeds from it obviously for the story beats and all but like what you get from you know the 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 world and the atmosphere and the the sort of um the politics and everything else that they wanted to, to wedge in here they kind of tried to lean a little bit more into like the mythology
1: of in the
3: the ar- the area the folklore area and stuff
1: and the, yeah you know, and, and, and i will say even even though this was filmed in nova scotia i mean hey close enough to, to maine in a way right but um and the, i think i think that original salem's lot was filmed in like 2004 or something or, or um in uh, Australia or something like that. I will say both of these really do get that that rugged feel of Maine, right? Like the pine trees and the wilderness. And it's funny because I think the the guy the guy directed The Witch grew up right in New England also, I making that up? yeah I up? Yeah, didn't I, I should I'm know. I'm not I had, sure. I had to interview him um for for uh The Lighthouse a while back. But um yeah, but I there is yeah, something be said for but, you know, I think, yeah, I think like you, I don't know, it, it's new England is such a, dis, or not just new England, but new England wilderness is such a distinct kind of thing. Right. So it makes sense that they would get that right. Even in Salem's law, which I'm not as huge a fan of. So, um, yeah, well, I guess we'll see what happens then. Yeah. I'd love it for them to
3: continue. I mean, I, I, yeah. cause I think, I think this, the, the staging in this is just, is pretty stellar. And i think that the the atmosphere alone is something that i really love like jen you you mentioned that yeah they did acknowledge that this is in the the same vision or not vision but like same they had talent from the lighthouse that was on board it was uh mike ryan mm-hmm. hall um who was the, he was the second assistant art director on the lighthouse and i think you can definitely see threads of that in this um especially because he, you know the way that he kind of because right on, on this show um you know he's bringing on he kind of works in that same capacity um and you can kind of see that art direction unfold in here and i love that i, I think that's one of my favorite things about this show is just the aesthetic of it and i'd love i mm-hmm. I'd just love to have that as as for
1: like a salem's lot adaptation and especially one for the road especially as, if you know if they do one for the road And are you going to call them up? Hey, where's my fucking money? Yeah, (laughs) the Losers (laughs) Club. That that was not a free idea, my friend. Um, Yeah,
0: Um, yeah, yeah, like kind of along those lines of the aesthetic, Mike, like, um, and they rely, I think, on a lot of archetypal imagery uh, when it comes to vampires, but also, um, I don't know, these kinds of towns as they exist in in folklore and myth and stuff. And uh, but the vampires themselves, I mean, this sort of relates to the idea of not reinventing the vampire, but there's a simple to the design of the, mm-hmm. of sort of, you know, the, the vampiric, uh, undead. And it's extremely effective because it's subtle. Like, you know, they don't, you know, they don't grow wings or anything or like, you know, their body doesn't change shape. It's, it's really about the eyes and the teeth and the skin mm-hmm. color, you know? Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is, uh, is more effective than any vampire reimagining I've seen, you know, uh, that I can remember. Um, and so I give it credit for that. I think it really, it just has such confidence, I think, in the sturdiness of the Bram Stoker myth, you know, as it applies to the way that uh, vampire myths are told, especially in like, you know, um, Western storytelling. And it's, uh, and I kind of just like that it relies on that and really spins a new story out of it. Like, I mean, it's it's King's story, but they are, like you mentioned, Jen. there's a lot of elaboration on small things, small seeds that were in the original story and really not just like, um, you know, when we mention a baby with no eyes, uh, not just giving us that image, but building an entire story around that. And that's mm-hmm. just one that's just one example. And then that's how, you know, you really build out these interesting characters like the minister character played by Gord Rand, who's sort of a journeyman character actor, one of those guys that you he's not even really a that guy he's kind of just like Mm -hmm. one of those like you look at his IMDB and you're like oh I've seen him in 50 things you know Uh, but Mm -hmm. he's great in this he plays sort of this uh, you know this minister who's got a lot of secrets in his past but you know is really trying to be better and really trying to step up and be a better person for God and for his community and all these other things and then um, but just also the way that the you know the religion is politics like in this time and then this era and this part of the country Um, and like just the way that you can take like that one seed and spin this whole sort of narrative around um you know a handful of these characters um it really like i i think that's what i was most stunned by and i've tried to express this a couple of times like in this episode is just that like how surprised I was by how invested I was in the ensemble Uh, Mm -hmm. because I initially really, especially in the first couple episodes, I was like, this is really, I think I'm with Brody on this journey, you Mm -hmm. know, because I wasn't um, connecting to a lot of the others, but man, it's like some of the, the character beats and the twists and the ways that they use the vampire myth to uh, tell complex, like emotional stories. Like there's a a narrative between uh, the sheriff or the constable and his wife um, that becomes really interesting and really, complex once the supernatural component sort of weaves itself into the fabric of their of their married life. And um and the show's really smart about that. And these are stories mm-hmm. I feel like I've heard told in various ways before. Mm-hmm. Like again, I don't think anything in Chapelwaite is reinventing the wheel, but I think that there's almost something comforting in that because these are familiar stories that are being told in a new, stylish, and exciting way. Um, in my opinion,
2: yeah, I feel like that's what. But it it goes like in its own ways, you know. Like a lot of them did not resolve the way I thought. Like it still keeps you guessing, you know. And one yeah. of the things that I loved about. Like it feels like it's making like it, it's like talking about like the hypocrisy of religion and it's kind of wrestling with that, which is something that's always been really related to vampires. Like, um, mm-hmm. but it's like addressing that in a way that doesn't feel like it's making a statement, but also like right. in a way that brings out like this is what human beings probably were like. And there's like a racial element that never gets resolved because it wouldn't have been resolved yeah. in 1850. Mm-mm. You know, right. but it's like it. And that's what makes it feel so real. And it's funny because I did not like Shit's Creek at all until like the first like season was almost over. And then I was like, oh, I really care about these characters. And I think it was around episode three or four, which was when I really started to love them. So
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's an important distinction to make too. Because one of the things that's been driving me nuts, especially as a history major right now, is this sort of use that uh, pop culture has been using like the past – to almost kind of disregard of a lot of the, the sort of hurdles and sort of trials and tribulations that a lot of, you know, maligned and marginalized cultures have been going through. You know, I'm not going to, you know, name any examples and stuff like that, really. But like, you know, and I can, but like there's a lot of like more historical fiction that's been coming out in like the pop culture. And one of my biggest gripes about it is this been like this kind of disregard for the actual context of what that historical you know, Hmm. thing was happening with with regards to whatever, um, you know, culture is being represented here. And because for me, I think that's kind of disregarding and, um, re marginalizing those culture in the sense that you're disregarding like all the, the, the sort of the, again, like the trials and tribulations that went through, for all those for all of the people at that time, and like the thing I love about Chapel weight is that, as you said, Jen, like they don't rectify it, they don't remo- you know go, oh yeah, I know, they're gonna find a way to you know come around this and it's like no, in history, that wasn't the case, and like mm-hmm. what's important for us to look back on when you' see history is so that you acknowledge that, yeah, it really fucking sucked we need to like that that's something that we have to learn from, like we can't just keep writing over that you know and and I don't know that's me just being on my soapbox, but like it's just a trend that I've been seeing so far right now in Hollywood where it's like. Look, I'm all in. I'm all in on trying to get like you know representation out there. But like, don't marginalize the history of the, of, of whatever culture you're put, you're putting on screen by acting like everything was like hunky dory. Because that's I think you're I think that's a problem that you're creating in itself. Because we need yeah. to learn from history. We have to know the shit that happened for us to go. Okay, this is fucking awful. Why did we do this? And so that we can kind of trek forward. And so I, mm-hmm. I just don't know. I think there's this kind of, I get the understanding and I understand the, the, the positive notions of, of trying to create these narratives there, but like, I just think you need to have that historical accuracy there so that we don't fall in line we're such a society that's so inclined to forget about the past so that when mm-hmm. we're now rewriting it, it's like, well, okay, now we're really fucking ourselves over. So anyway. That's my diet, yeah. diatribe. But I, that's what I, one thing I do respect about Chapawate is that they are mm. acknowledging the sins of the past, as opposed to just dismissing it. Like,
0: yeah, you know? like it's funny you bring that up, Mike. I I was thinking about this too, um, and I think this relates to when I said this is like the most uncool show. Mm. Like, it's so not trendy right now because like the big trend right now. Like, I think about a show like Dickinson on Apple TV, which a lot of people say is good. Um, I have not seen it, but it's very much as kind of like. Like, let's take uh, millennial and Gen Z sensibilities and inject them into the story of Emily Dickinson as it exists, you know, and sort of um, tell her story, but through modern storytelling techniques, you know, and um, and uh, trends and things like that. And that's fine. I think that there's a place for that. But especially I like what you're saying, Mike, in the sense that when you're touching on really heavy historical things where there's a lot of darkness, especially in America, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to talk about like, you know, collective memory loss, I mean, that's just America in a nutshell. Oh, totally. And so, yeah, so it's it's like... design. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so you're right. Like, I I feel like this show, like, actually does find a really, like, because um, uh, Adrian Brody was married to an Islander uh, and had three children with her, and it's like, that instantly makes them, um, you know, like, they have to deal with racism in the town, like, and and it feels to me like a very honest and, um, uh, depiction that isn't trying that isn't injecting like necessarily moral or 2021 sensibilities or any kind of um of uh well if i were there I would have done it this way you know what I mean it's like very true exactly yeah to mm-hmm. what exactly happened yeah. yeah and i think that that's right. really effective and it is and it is interwoven um pretty seamlessly and elegantly I think into the actual narrative like in regards to the themes and the way that it intersects with the supernatural how the vampires are viewed um and like how you know the difference between between Jerusalem's Lot and Preacher's Corners. Like, you know, these are two different communities um, that, uh, you know, are live in complete disharmony for many reasons but well and they also um, tie
1: to it too with with because i mean adrian brody and his family they're already outsiders because he's this prodigal son coming back and mm-hmm. his family already has a reputation right and once again not going to go into too many details um he's also an outsider in the fact that he does have yeah you know, his children are children of color they're not mm-hmm. they're not white and then on top of that you know a lot of the people in the towns are discrimi- or in the town are discriminating against them because when supernatural occurrences start happening they immediately may, may do make it a thing about race and all that. Right. So I think, I think it's a thing where, cause I agree with you guys, I'm not at all against going back and, you know, diversifying some of these stories, oh, totally. but yeah. if it is a story that deals explicitly, not explicitly, but at least implicitly with race, like this one does, you do do a disservice if you're not respecting some of that historical accuracy. And if you're not portraying those people's experiences the way that it would have happened back then. Uh-huh. Right. Cause that's the reality of it. And if you're, if you're doing a story about ostracization, ostrac- ostrac- Ostrify, was it ostracization on a ostracization ostracization uh, there, yeah. there you go if you're doing a story about that <laughs> Ostrich. Which this, yeah yeah, the- I, yeah about if you're doing a story of ostriches um <laughs> uh, vampire ostriches no but if you're doing a story about that and you and you are going to diversify the cast um at least in regards to the original source material which this is doing then you do have to grapple with that because you want know, like you guys are all saying otherwise I think you you are kind of you're in a way not respecting that experience back in the day so yeah I agree yeah. With, with all y'all on that too
2: Well, and that is like diversifying the story, too, because the children are not in the story and Rebecca is not in the story. And while she is white, she's also like a very progressive woman, which was Mm -hmm. what I first got on board with when she starts talking about the church being used as intimidation. I was like, sold. I love this character. Um, And and so I think that's an interesting like inclusion into the story. And I think it's what gives a lot of life because, I mean, the short story, Mm. I appreciate it a lot more now, I think because I see like, I'm just going to imagine the seeds in the story growing to what chapel weight is. But I mean, it's a pretty straightforward. It doesn't, it's not really conclusive, you know, it kind of just lays a lot of groundwork and then just kind of gets out of there, you know? And so and it's I, just
1: the two characters, right? It's, it it's, is. Um, yeah. Miss Clovis
2: uh, is, Miss Cloris is in there too.
1: And then there's, isn't there like a manservant or something? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I can't remember his name, um, but he's not
1: Calvin or yeah. I don't think yeah, he's in yeah. the
2: show at all. He, yeah, but it's mostly just letters. Um, of Charles writing to various people and then going and visiting places and then talking about stuff that happens in the town. And so I appreciate them including characters like Rebecca and characters like the children and building that story out in a way because they didn't have to. They could have told a very straightforward story. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could have made it exactly like the story, you know? And so that's like kind of Keeping it to classic, the classic tale, but like expanding the world to represent characters that like were there, too, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part yeah. like when we're talking about like hindsight bias of like, oh, well, yeah, these people were very woke back then. They just couldn't say it like those those characters were did exist in those worlds. Yes. Historically, too. We just didn't tell those stories. So yeah. I appreciate the choice to do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned the character Rebecca that's played by Emily Hampshire, best known for Schitt's Creek. Um, what do we, she's sort of the second lead I'd say, uh, behind Mm -hmm. Adrian Brody. Um, so yeah. What do we think about her performance?
2: Love her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love the role. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is the first thing I've seen her in. Um, I've not seen Schitt's Creek and, uh, yeah, she has like her she has such like striking distinct um facial features that mm-hmm. in their way like I don't know, like certain people just don't look right in period pieces for me. That's something I've, <laughs> I've mm-hmm. like I joke about a lot. I'm just like you can't put uh Timothy Chalamet in like the 1800s. I don't believe it, you know. Um <laughs> well, and that's my own <laughs> that's just my own personal bias. But I think uh Brody is great at doing period cuz he's got like I don't know, he's got that like uh gaunt skeletal almost frame where he feels like something he, he's so Ichabod Craney I very yeah. much like I've uh, mm-hmm. always associated him with like um, you know period and uh, period dress and stuff and I like I think she really fits into it too just like her facial features strike me as someone who absolutely could um, have existed back then uh, like she's got like almost like church marm vibes mm-hmm. but then she plays this kind of like uh, you know uh, progressive character in regards to the way that this town uh, looks on race and gender um so yeah it's, she's like uh, a very welcome uh, addition i think
1: it's funny because i haven't um i've seen maybe four or five episodes of Shits creek and she her role is a little bit similar in that i mean she's a lot funnier obviously on Shits creek because it's a comedy but it is similar in that she's someone who's lived in the town for a bit but is kind of an outsider um i feel like she just brings that kind of sensibility to this which is really nice yeah 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 that's i
3: mean that's that's a good comp honestly. Um, and I think that she, I mean, she has a great past in terms of playing like a lot of, um, you know, peer-to-peer roles and stuff and it's not, you know, dr- she actually started more with drama than she did with, uh, you know, the comedy and all, but so it's, I think that her kind of leaning back on that, it's kind of just like old hat for her. Um, cause I think she's great. I mean, she thinks she blends in with the scenery perfectly here. And I do love the fact that she is kind of like the conduit for us. To go into yeah. this, into the mm-hmm. you know, into this family, into the history a little bit, and uh, also, hey, she's a writer, so it's like a good link to more Kingian archetypes that we get here too. So you know, yeah, uh, like, yeah, you know.
0: definitely. She and I feel like she's also sort of you know, if. As a 2021 audience, she is sort of the vessel by which mm-hmm. I think we can like, you know, the modern viewer can find that access into the world, especially because totally. she's one of the more most level headed characters, mm-hmm. um, because we can't really do it because the thing with Brody is, you know, he's entering into this. Um, he's already got a lot of, uh, you know. Um, Uh, stuff in his history that causes his brain to be, you know, a little bit rattled. Um, He's not fully well, I'd say, and uh, coming to this place and this house where he is resented in this town, there's mystery surrounding what happened to uh, his family and what havoc they wreaked on this town, Um, and then moving into this big estate where something is living in the walls, it seems, Um, and he's seeing worms where perhaps he shouldn't be seeing worms. These things uh, don't make him, like, necessarily the most reliable narrator at the beginning of the series he's he's kind of going through his own episode so i think she serves as that like level-headed bridge into it but the nice thing is they also give her um you know motivations and intentions and story that don't make her just sort of a one note um you know uh Mm. girl power character like there's a lot um there's a lot else going on with her that i think helps fully flesh out the character um yeah, but how about Brody? Like uh Brody's got to do a lot of um gross shit in this involving with worms and and other things. Uh how do we think uh brodes is is handling this? Is there has he done like a lot of horror outside of predators? I can't think I of. I mean, much. he did
3: the jacket, he did Splice. He's done oh, a yeah, lot. I, I, right. I feel like he's he done, done a lot of stuff
1: the jacket. Mike didn't you used to like in college and, like you'd be like don't put me back oh, don't the put jacket. me back in the jacket
3: like <laughs> because it, I, I saw that. It was that like is. all right, whatever. But like yeah, I mean, because he did King Kong, which has some horror elements on it, directed by Peter Jackson. So, I mean, and then he also did The Village, as we mentioned before. So he's—I oh, feel yeah, like yeah, he's he, got yeah. a lot of—he's got a little uh, dark edge to him, you know. So. Yeah, he does
2: a lot of dark stuff that is like kind of horror adjacent or like dark, weird, dramatic, you know.
1: And he, I think he, I think he plays tortured really well. I don't, I I know that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I mean it with utmost respect. I think there's, I think it's easy to fall into histrionics and unbelievability when you're playing someone who's, who's kind of obsessed and dark and getting tortured by these various forces outside your control. But I really think he does that because he's, he's also just good at playing integrity in a way that's very natural Mm -hmm. too. Because I mean, so far anyway, you know, he, we do see that he has I think ultimately he is a good man, right? Even though he gets, he gets caught up in some bad things. We'll say that (laughs) as the show goes on, but we see, I think it's, it's really easy to, to, for being a good man, right? Especially in this time period to come off as too self-righteous or over the top. And on the other side of that coin, it's also easy for being tortured to come off as really histrionic. And I just think he just, Is on the level with both of those things in a way that really makes him charismatic and likable. And didn't he? Didn't you say he like ate worms or something like that for the the
3: role? Well, he ate worms in a previous role, but in this one, he actually put the worm in his
1: nose. Ah yeah so no wait thanks. what role did he roll what role did he eat worms for previously Oh okay. uh the jacket probably it was
2: wrecked i think <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. the jacket he he
3: uh yeah. he talks a lot about it in their interview which is a lot of fun so definitely yeah. check that out um but he, ah, there's
0: worms in the jacket uh, Get me out a of line the jacket. The jacket. he
3: actually started eating. he was eating worms in darjeeling limited you know um just uh <laughs> yeah. hanging out and with jason Schwartzman. Yeah, he's, like, on the train. You know, there's a re-
0: <laughs> you know, there's a wrestler called the Boogeyman who would eat worms, and it was, like, really disgusting. Uh, like, really? I, yeah, I would, like, have to, like, cover my eyes. It's absolutely yeah, disgusting.
2: Worms are gross. Yeah.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I do not want that shit in my mouth. And I don't either. Trouble, I have trouble eating gummy worms. hmm I can't
3: even it might eat come to wait, life. Wait,
0: really? Do
1: you really?
2: <laughs> no, I'm just
3: I was gonna say up. gummy worms are pretty fucking great. I
2: here's the thing about gummy worms is they're always put in some kind of like chocolate milkshake because it's like a muddy, yeah. gummy thing. And chocolate and gummy Oh, the cup of mud, yeah. What... Yeah, no.
1: DJI Fridays, our sponsor. Yeah. yeah.
2: Cup of mud, mm-hmm.
0: that makes me think of something else. Oh. Not, not <laughs> it's not something I wanna I wanna eat. I'll tell you that much. Two worms.
1: Makes one. me it
3: makes me think of Jeff yeah. Jeff Nichols Mud.
0: Yeah, good movie. Um, uh starring uh Adrian Brody. I'm just kidding. Yeah no okay. starring
3: the the man in black himself, uh Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, there's the King's the iconic Sumanian. man in black. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I guess like for the King fan, does this we've we've touched on this a little bit, but I think sort of a key question is how much does this feel like uh Stephen King's story? Like what Stephen King can we glimpse in this? Or should you just approach it like um you know, like a, an, an any normal horror property. I mean, what, what can the King fan find in this? What do you think?
2: I don't think it feels like a King story, but I feel like it feels like Salem's Lot mm-hmm. a lot. Mm. You know, like, I because, and like, Randall, you and I were talking about this, like, Jerusalem's Lot is such an outlier. Like, that is not a typical King story at all. Um, and I feel like this one does, like, it's so atmospheric. It's not modern at all. It doesn't have, like, references to the blacklist or whatever. Um, but it feels like such like a dark like atmospheric story in the same way that I think Salem's Lot does like it hits a lot of the Salem's Lot beats um without like telling the same story which is something I keep saying so I won't go more into it but yeah it feels like that and it feels like something you can really immerse yourself in and it feels like a a world with real characters which I think is what makes it feel like Stephen King you know.
0: Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think the characters is for me what makes this feel most like King. It's the it's mm-hmm. the, how the ensemble fleshes out, and the way and the level of devotion that, especially in the later episodes, is offered to the ensemble. The fact mm-hmm. that each of them are given really richly drawn uh, stories and relationship dynamics that uh, really transcend, I think, um, the archetypes that they manifest as in the early episodes, um, because. Yeah, I think that like the, especially like in the in the last like 3 episodes or so the way the story bounces between like that's and i always think that's a good testament uh to good storytelling is when you can and this is something king does all the time is when you can bounce between different characters uh and you don't have to worry about having that like main character to tie everybody together right mm-hmm. like because each of these characters that you've developed um they can each be their own protagonist in this scene and in this moment you're not itching to go back to like another storyline that's how i felt uh really in the uh in sort of the uh the final um stretch of this show is i was very much like this feels like king and how it's popping between all these different stories and i'm invested in each and every one of them and it's super mm-hmm. exciting in that regard um mike yeah i mean I, like i was saying before i think that
3: this expands a lot like or you know unfolds a lot like a King story um and that you know the way he kind of lays his foundation and Um, allows for the action to kind of take place in the, you know, the the third and fourth act. So, in that respect, I definitely think it has some Kingian qualities. I, you know, we do follow a writer as I mentioned with Emily Hampshire. So I think that that's also a Kingian quality to it as well. The thing that I think is distinctly unKingian is just the, the vision of it all. You know, like I don't necessarily look at this as like, when I, when I look at this aesthetically, I don't think like, Oh, Stephen King. I think of more right. like, you know, the, I actually even think like more sleepy hollow or more like the lighthouse. Oh, absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. you, like know, po, uh, yeah. you know, you know, I think there's a lot of that aesthetic to it, but, I, that's something I kind of like, though, about this adaptation. You know, it reminds me of, you know, like 1922 in 2017. That was one of my favorite adaptations that year. Um, and I and it, it, just because it felt so different, you know, it looked it, they were taking the source material and Stephen King's IP and taking it to like a different place. And. I like how merciless this is. I like how, um, you know, Gothic this is. And, and I think that if you're looking at the source material strictly of Jerusalem's lot, I think it absolutely nails that, that sort of aesthetic. And I think one of the reasons why I struggle with that short story is because that short story in itself is very uncanny it's more of an H.P. Lovecraft story than it is, mm-hmm. a, than it is Stephen King. So I think this is an intriguing adaptation in that respect. I think that, you know, it, It kind of shows us that there are ways to do King, there are other worlds, uh, for the King adaptations, uh, so to speak. And I, so that's why I like about it. Um, but I could definitely see it as being off-putting for those that, you know, are looking for, you know, your, your nineties adaptations, Stephen King, (laughs) it's just, you know, this is not that. So
2: yeah.
0: Dan, how about you?
1: Yeah. I agree with everything. Y'all are saying, and also, and and it feels like Jerusalem's Lot to Mm -hmm. me, right? Like, it feels like the short story Jerusalem's Mm -hmm. Lot while also building out from it and like including everything that's in there for the most part, I'll see how it ends, Um, but at least the basic premise and the mythology of Jerusalem's Lot, right? As well as some of those um, more minute details like the whippoorwills and the baby without eyes. Um, And even aside from the time period and the fact that Jerusalem's Law is a unique story, like you all are saying, it gets the ensemble, right. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's actually where most modern King adaptations fail yeah. really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, they get so caught up in stupid Easter eggs and whatever else without actually focusing on, you know, slow burn. Because people forget as accessible as King's novels are, a lot of them are slow, burns, are. especially the yeah. ones with big ensembles, like under the dome, it Salem's mm-hmm. lot. I mean, they, they, they have a readability to them. And by the once we're, we're rolling we're really rolling right but people forget how much time he really spends building those things up and then letting it explode mm-hmm. um and aside from a character named steven in this which i kept wondering if that was a reference him. <laughs> i like that there's not like oh what's that circus tent over there oh well this right yeah but, i mean kind of like what randall did with uh <laughs> with um castle rock right yeah <laughs> I, it's one of the first it's one of the first king adaptations that to me doesn't feel like it's pandering to fans in any kind of way. It just feels like it's trying to tell a good story. And I, I think yeah. it very much does. Yeah.
0: And yeah, and there is King's dominion, but that's the thing is it's not, it's not a reference. No. Like it actually, right. it's part of the visual palette or like, I don't want to spoil any of them, but like there's some that kind of are built into the, the visuals and sort of the, the tableau. And then there's others that I don't know, are just more subtle and, and archetypal in their way. And, um, but I want to add to that, like, I don't want to downplay like how fucking like gnarly that this gets like this is yeah. an extremely grizzly oh, and, and the effects are good too. Yeah.
1: There's not, I can't, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's relying so heavy on CGI. Like it, no. it just seems like good old school spooky haunted house horror yeah. effects. Yeah. yeah. And,
0: and yeah. honestly, when you brought up under the dome, I thought that was a great analog actually, just in terms of the way the story builds, like it's the idea that, um, you know, a larger supernatural event is capturing a small community and it's about the, how the, the religion and the politics um, sort of, uh, you know, manifest in the wake of that um, you know the way that that supernatural event um, impacts those things, and it's really about the the sort of um, amassing of the ensemble that leads to a very climactic um, action oriented climax, which is really uh it's it's neat in that regard. And like yeah, because I feel like the end of Under the Dome actually reminds me a lot of like the end of of uh, in in a weird offbeat way. Like they're very different worlds and stories, but like the 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 way that the action rises in Under the Dome feels a lot like the way it does in this story Um, Jen what were you going to say
2: yeah and that's one of the things that I love about it is it really delivers on all of those fronts because one of my favorite moments of the show is when you see someone not to spoil anything someone may or may not be getting vampired and then you just see a a black shadow kind yeah. of mar- it's so cool like the way the show plays with light and like walking through the house and there's just a door open and it's so creepy but it also is like really gross and disgusting so like if we think about like in Don's Macabre when he talks about horror terror and revulsion like it really hits on all of that because mm-hmm. like these are like blood spurting vampires at some points like it's it's real gross and in, like in Salem's Law introduction he talks about the EC vampires mm-hmm. and yeah. how like they're, they're real gross, and they, like, put spigots in their necks and stuff. And I feel like we get that, but we also get the quiet, like, maybe there's somebody down the stairs moments, you know? And mm-hmm. then we get the revulsion with the worms that are so gross. Yeah, know?
0: it's nasty. So it just, it like, feels it's firing on, on all heart.
2: It does, yeah. It feels like really Halloweeny atmosphere too. Like I almost think this might mm-hmm. be better, like dropped all at once on Netflix around October. You know, well, hundred uh, percent.
3: Yeah, if 100%. it was on. But here's the thing, though. We were talking about this, Randall, is that like if this was on Netflix, I still don't think this would be like this huge trending thing.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, that's like it's like I said. There's just nothing yeah. like memeable about it. Um, which I know is so depressing to say, but that's just the reality. Like <laughs> having worked in media, like that's the shit that does take off is the shit that can be memed. Um, mm. so many shows just disappear into the ether there because so many shows get made nowadays and i I get annoyed and i get just personally annoyed because i think that this is a really cool show like and i'm just worried that nobody's gonna see it
3: well there is that moment where like emily hampshire's character like holds up like her notebook and says like it's like here is the emotion i have today or whatever you know (laughs) it'll be just like stranger things but no i'm just joking there's none of that
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. sadly i'm trying to think like what Um, is
3: the most memeable thing here and i guess like the only thing i could think of um is absolutely nothing <laughs>
0: like, yeah like
3: there is just nothing
1: here i, th- like,
0: I just think shirtless brody is yeah is all the show it has maybe going maybe regard. some of the
1: worm stuff like the worms come out of his nose people meme it just just like uh, uh how mondays I feel, am like, i right the pandemic yeah. monday <laughs> the fuck, uh, year 2020 and looks like 2021
0: too. <laughs> yeah uh. um Cool. Then uh, as we wrap up, let's go around and give it some noses based on what we've seen so far. Not everybody's finished the series, but I think we can give some preliminary noses. Uh, and, and, you know, and if we're f- up for it, we might revisit uh, once the series has finished its run. So, yeah, Jen, why don't you give this a bright red Pennywise Clown Nose ranking? And who's your MVP?
2: Mm, my MVP. You know what? You would think it would be Brody, but I'm going to give it to Emily Hampshire because she's yeah. what really kind of hooked me in. Um I so I this is the second adaptation that was announced that has come out this year that I was not excited about Lisey's story being the other. Um, because I didn't like this source material and I didn't like Lisey's story. And I think the way like both shows really were able to like really embrace their vision and stay really true to the story they were trying to tell really made me like the source material a lot more. Um, I loved this. I thought there are some, you know, I don't think it's a perfect show and there are a couple of things that I don't know, but I I was really on board. I really sucked me in, and it really scared me. Um, and I'm gonna give it four bright red clown wise penny wise and clown nice. wise <laughs> clown <I> wise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan, your bright red noses for the first five episodes. So let's say that, and your MVP for the first five.
1: Yeah, the only honestly, the only reason I'm not gonna give it the the full five is because I haven't seen all of it yet. Um, and it it's not the most addicting show i will say that like I, I part of why i didn't get through all tennis because i had to space out you know the the this isn't um i don't know i think you should leave or breaking bad or whatever <laughs> else right but that's what i love about it i love that slow burn that feels completely unique to me it feels like the horror of this show is unique from a modern standpoint in that like i said it's not abstract it's prestige but also really likable and exce- i don't know i know just that it wasn't like binge worthy necessarily but it also does feel accessible at least once this this fifth episode happens um so it just feels like nothing else going on right now and i've always got to respect that especially when it comes to horror and i like that it's not answering to anyone i like that it's not trying to be something other than what it completely is already which is this kind of esoteric vampire story um so i'm going to give it four bright red I'll, I'll give it four and a half which in uh, this world will be four bright red penny Cl- plentywise clown noses with a little worm hanging out one of <laughs> them that's the half one right there i think it's fantastic um i say get epics you know show epics a little love and i know i sound like their spokesperson but i hate when shit like this gets canceled right or like doesn't get reviewed right or or if it's just supposed to be a one-off if they do have plans to make a really good sales lot out of this i would love to see that too so hey get epics i have no idea how much it costs or where you can get it but uh, Epics
0: costs five bucks a month
1: um, oh that's not bad yeah
0: i had it for i was watching this um well, it's one of those. My mom wanted to show me uh, this Charles Manson docu series that's on Epics, uh, and because she loves, I know it's kind of weird, but my mom and I bond over Charles Manson, and um, it's it's like uh, so. I got like a free trial to watch it, and then I forgot to cancel it. So I was like, well uh you know oops and uh but i did i will say the 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 manson docuseries is really good so i i highly recommend that um otherwise i i can't really the only other thing i know that's on epics is that um uh if alfred from um pennyworth batman yeah. was was young and horny yeah is uh that shows on epics wait um, there's a
1: show called it's called, it's alfred. called pennyworth it's pennyworth yeah really it's about young is it when alfred's like in the in the special forces and everything yeah 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 and he's really just, he's
0: and he's fucking everywhere yeah. and everyone i mean
1: he alfred hey look i'm a big batman comic scholar and alfred back in his day i mean he, well he has a daughter a secret daughter he never knew about from the comics Ooh, and uh, bad um, boy yeah, yeah. i know pay no, pay i love i love that is, is, <laughs> it, is it good though is pennyworth good
0: um, I've heard it's fu- it's fine. I don't know. I haven't. It's one of those shows that I feel like it's got like three seasons, I think, but mm-hmm. like nobody mm-hmm. talks about it. I Penny only know Worth. about it because I was
1: getting press releases for it like every day. Pennyworth, I'll stick with Pennywise. You know, what I'm oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I, I for real though, I think this is I. I love. I, hey respect to epics for letting the creators do what they want this nothing felt shoehorned or like it was cow to anyone um oh and my mvp i'm gonna go with that eyeless baby That ah, thing it's me so yeah man it's so really scary, scary. like the show is genuinely scary not just scary like oh i'm saying it's scary because i have to or because it, it's try it just it, it's scary in such an old school way that i haven't seen in a long time so yeah, yeah. i High- highly recommended from yours truly well, I like you saying
0: like like spooky, ooky haunted house. Like I feel like that, and like bringing up the comics too, like the EC comics. I feel like this captures the spirit of that in terms of mm-hmm. of it being like splatter worthy, but then the drama is also very real. That's kind of I think what the show does in a neat way is it it captures sort of um like the like the splattery quality while also taking its characters seriously, and that's like I don't know a neat thing. What were you gonna say, Joe? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and if you like this, you should check out 1990s Flatliners starring a bunch (laughs) of hot 90s actors because it captures it very well. It's so good. You can hear me geek out about it in the interview, but yeah. Written by uh, Peter Pilardi. So he's my all time. It's a Chicago horror
1: movie, right? It It is a Chicago horror movie. It's it's so good.
2: It's got 90s Keeper Sutherland, Kevin Bacon, Julia Roberts, um, Oliver Platt, and William Baldwin. So check it out. Oliver
0: Platt, you say? I do say Oliver Platt. If we're talking, he must have felt like. (laughs)
2: He must have felt. I like, know, uh, right?
0: God, everyone's so hot on this set. Like it kind I'm of such bumps a... him
2: up, though. Like he kind of oh, is no, dreamy by association. Yeah, he's this. great.
0: Like I love Platt, but like when you put you stand next to like '90s Bacon uh, uh-huh. and uh, Kiefer and Julia, it's just like, dude, you're 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 going home from the bar alone. While I know. Uh, he
1: really is like the Vern. He's that, the of writer that of the Stand cast, by me. Hey, and and in Lake Placid, he's like kind of a Lothario. He's yeah. like the hotshot scientist guy. So yeah. I love oh, him in
3: Placid. I remember the whole entire time in that movie. I'm just like, no, you know, because he's kind of like,
1: <laughs> you think he's like the
3: total fodder for like the, the alligator or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, he makes it right. He I he gets through all. I no, so. I yeah, get yeah, well spoiler alert for 21 I like, I like movie. Lake Placid. Be, yeah. a 23-year-old.
0: Sorry,
3: old
2: not, movie. To, not to
0: digress. Yeah. Uh, hey, we love a good digression. Mike, uh, you're you right. Bright red pennywise clown. Knows ranking and your mvp
3: yeah no this is gonna be four and a half for me i I think this is really solid this is the type of stephen king adaptation i want to see something a little left of the Mm -hmm. dial something a little dark uh but some with a vision you know like this has an aesthetic this has a vision this is something that i can escape into which is what draws me to king in the first place uh i think the performances are great and if i had to choose an mvp strictly performance wise i'm going with adrian brody i just think he just muscles his like he just steals the screen every time he's on i i I think Mm where you said it right randall and that you just watch him and you're like man this guy looks like he jumped out of like a black and white photograph yeah and like i I, I just like love watching him and i i I think he's just dashing in many ways and um so i think he's a a great lead but i gotta say like if, if the mvp though really should be like burst ears. like i think like again like the vision of this it doesn't look like television you know like you know it's not tv it's hbo uh no it's it's not tv it's epics but uh (laughs) i i think that it just there's a real high level of like quality that we're seeing on this this type of direction here that surprised me especially just the way that it's lit the all the candlelit cinematography in this and just the way it all comes together he kicks it off in the ter- first two episodes, and it really carries over through that way. And it's it, it looks fucking gorgeous, and that certainly yeah. is a huge reason why I love this show. So,
0: yeah i I really like the show too, and I think it's a cool counterpoint to Lisey's story. I think that there, are, uh, like two very surprising and interesting uh, King adaptations to come out this year, mm-hmm. uh, this summer, no less. Um, Lisey's story is is so like, um. Artistic and abstract and beautiful and emotionally felt and like visually stunning in its way in that in that very prestige way. Like you really feel like um, you have like an auteur at the helm when um, when you're watching Lisey's story, Um, whereas this 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 series, like, again, it has that. It takes itself a little less seriously, uh, while still taking its character seriously, but like, it's the fact that it's able to capture the, um, folkloric, uh, comic booky kind of aspects of it, that this show can be really gnarly and grisly and, uh, appeal to sort of the basest instincts and, uh, kind of fundamental horrors, things that scare us, vampire myths, all that, but also, um... But also have this austerity to it at the same time, which is uh, what you're getting at, Mike, with just how beautifully shot it is. It's it's such a neat little show to me, um, and I'm 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 also gonna give it four and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses because I uh, I just I I feel like we don't see shows like this at all anymore, um, and I wish we did. Uh, it it kind of scratches a lot of itches for me. Like it's it's great haunted house horror, but then it also gets to be um, kind of a uh, band together and storm the castle kind of, um, narrative as it moves on and has this kind of action quality that I think will always be, you know, near and dear to my heart, uh, based on the movies I grew up on. And so, yeah, big fan of Chapelweight, um, much more so than I thought I'd be. And, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about it. Um, and you can hear what the actors, including Emily Hampshire and Adrian Brody, and the creators, the Filardys, um, uh, we talk to all of them. And they all have really cool things to say about the creation of the show. So please listen to that. My MVP is the Filardi brothers. Because uh, are they brothers? Um, yeah just like the Scolari brothers yeah. <laughs> to steal, to just steal just Jen's like, joke
3: just yeah. like them. <laughs> yeah. that was Jen's joke Is Ghostbusters? I, I
2: apologize it's yeah. Ghostbusters too I think yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah best scene best scene with the Ghostbusters to be honest with you but yeah, I mean yeah. they're all the best I,
2: scene but yeah it's a good
0: one <laughs> I um but yeah I give it to them because I feel like they really did create something uh, that's both familiar and exciting um, and and creepy like genuinely creepy at times so yeah anything else to add before we uh close the book on Chapel Chapelweight I don't think I'd so. Like to
3: sink my teeth into more Adrian Brody. Uh, no, go with a stupid fucking like. Uh, joke. I don't think
0: you could sink a, sink your teeth into his abs. They're simply too hard.
3: And you'd break, they would your, break teeth. your teeth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you'd be like mm-hmm. a toothless vampire, which is what an existential dilemma that is. You know.
2: I know. What do you do? I know. Just like <laughs> wander, <laughs> know wander around small, the earth
3: doing nothing. Like, oh, sun's out, Right. going back to sleep. <laughs> Can't eat. Cool. <laughs> you know Uh
0: <laughs> Mike what's coming up on Halloweenies
3: Uh well we just uh dropped our Manhunter 35th anniversary episode so if you want to listen to like almost 4 hours of us going deep on that movie uh, you can go and become a, uh, a member of our Patreon over there, uh, www.patreon.com slash Halloweenies pod. And then we have a two parter for screen three, which Jen is on actually, um, nice. where we, we have, it's still yet to be finished, uh, cause we went so long. <laughs> so we have to regroup and, uh, finish the last hour of it, but, uh, great app fun app a uh, lot of discussions on there um and you'll hear me go off about uh, josh pace and and that movie who i think is fucking annoying and uh you'll see why who does he play uh plays one of the the, the archetyp- archetypal uh jewish detective basically where he just basically says cynical lines the entire movie and mm-hmm. can't stand him but love him
0: yeah <sighs> uh jen what's coming up on psychoanalysis
2: um, well, I mentioned uh, You're Next. We had a Comfort Horror episode. And then tonight we were recording one on Event Horizon, which I'm nice. super excited about. And then our next theme, um, I'm not exactly sure what we're calling the topic, but it's going to be about kind of objectification. And we're going to be talking about Assassination Nation. And we just decided we're going to pair it with Maniac, the original one. Oh, my God. I- oh, that yeah. is one
3: of my
0: favorite movies. I fucking love that movie.
3: I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I'm
2: really excited. So, yeah. It's a so, really yeah.
0: dirtbag New York movie. It's yeah. great. That's it what ca- I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't really like the, the New York that exists in that world will never exist again. Know, for is, better and worse. It's, it's sad in a way. It's a yeah. fascinating movie. I I really love Maniac. Yeah. Um Dan, what's up with you?
1: Uh yeah, you can hear me on the Manhunter Halloweenies episode. Uh my audio production adaptation rather of The Frog Prince is running through August, through the end of August. Uh, and you can get that at JarrettProductions.com. Uh, Jarrett is J-A-R-R-O-T-T. I think that's about it for me. Um, are, there yeah, any eyeless, a... are there any eyeless babies in the Frog Prince? <laughs> no, uh, no. There is. There's, I mean, the there's some, no. There's not. <laughs>
0: Love that you had to think about it. <laughs> there,
1: there is some grow. Some grotesque stuff happens at the end. Um, that I that I won't spoil here. Uh, I mean, it's not horror necessarily, but there's some. Uh, it goes to some freaky places by the end, but no eyeless babies. We mentioned... We mentioned crib death in the play. That's about as far as it Oof. goes. And there's some witchcraft in it, but yeah, no, no, eyeless babies. Um, so, 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 uh, sorry to say, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> cool.
0: Well, this has been fun, guys. Uh, yeah. Um, stay tuned. We might, we might revisit Chapelweight down the road. I mean, it doesn't end till October, I think. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll revisit, reassess at that time. Uh, to see if if y'all are clamoring for more Chapelweight content. In the meantime, however, let's sign off with a long days and, and
2: last I got some hot, I some hot friends I got some hot friends I got some hot friends I got some hot friends but you know you want
0: somebody to treat
3: you good
0: this is the end of our show for now Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers,
2: The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.